So do you remember when you became a saint? Do you remember the day you became a saint? You know, we have done a disservice to that word by thinking that it applies only to the people that are holier than us. <laughs> but that is the ordinary garden variety word that the Bible uses to describe who Christians are. We are saints. We are holy ones. Thank you, Jesus. I remember the day I became a saint. It was the January middle of my senior year of high school. God surprised me by his love and included me in his family and changed my mind in the blink of an eye. And because that happened in a church of the Nazarene, I immediately, as I began attending worship services and midweek youth group and Sunday evening testimony meetings and on and on, I remember beginning to hear about entire sanctification. It was often mentioned in the pastor's sermons. There were spring and fall revival, week-long revival services where sanctification was usually the topic of every sermon. I went off to college a little over a year later and revival services there focused on the same topic. I was a religion major. I had been called to be a pastor, so it started showing up in the studies that I was uh, benefiting from. And it created in me a hunger to be entirely sanctified. What is this thing that all these people keep preaching about and teaching about and testifying to and talking about? I, I want some of that. About four years later, the revival services my junior year of college when I experienced entire sanctification. Entire sanctification. It's, it's the cardinal doctrine of the Church of the Nazarene. It goes by a variety of different names and phrases depending on which aspect of it. It could be called holiness or Christian perfection or perfect love, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the second work of grace, but it's... It's what the Church of the Nazarene feels that it is called to proclaim across the world. In my senior year of college, Harvey Blaney, Dr. Harvey Judson Smith Blaney, isn't that a name to live with, was the religion major's department head, and one of the things that he said Many of the things that he said have stuck with me, but this is the one that I actually remember. He made what I thought at the time was a shocking statement. He said that if it, being entirely sanctified once is good, then two or three times is even better. And that has been my experience. In my junior year was that first time I had gotten involved with junior high ministry at the Wollaston Church, and Brian Bollinger was making my life miserable. <laughs> Only kidding, just kidding. That was my first experience with what might be called parish ministry. I was a youth worker and loving it, absolutely loving it. But 
I didn't realize at the time, but for the year or two that I had been involved with that junior high youth ministry, and Lynn was part of that, um, I was taking on my shoulders all the pressure for the spiritual lives of these young people. I took this very seriously, probably too seriously for, for junior high kids. But part of that was because I, I just felt that it was up to me. I, I was the one that was ministering. I had to make sure that they got saved and sanctified and grew in the Lord. So during that revival service, with all of that pressure on my shoulders, while singing a song, a hymn called Whiter Than Snow, I went forward to the altar and God called me to roll that pressure off of my shoulders onto his shoulders. God was the one that was doing the ministry in those young people's lives. And in that moment, I felt my life being filled with the peace of God. About five years went past, and I was now a youth pastor down at the Community Chapel Church of the Nazarene in Nashua not only consumed with ministry zeal, I lived on a parsonage just on the other side of the parking lot, so there was no reason that I couldn't be working 60 and 70 hour weeks with teens, right? It's close, everything is happening right there. Not only that, but we had had our first child born, our second was on the way, beginning to feel that pressure. I was in the midst of a master's degree program, so there was additional studying that had to be done. And it left me with no time left over for God. Parents, you know what it's like with little kids, right? One of the things that perhaps in your life, but certainly in my life, suffered was my devotional time. I was getting pretty dry. I didn't recognize it at first, but pretty dry spiritually with that dwindling devotional life. One day I was sitting at my office desk studying for that master's program, I was reading a sermon from John Wesley's sermons called On Sin in Believers. On Sin in Believers. And God spoke to me through that 250-year-old sermon, calling me back to dependence upon him. Sure, there's family needs to be taken care of, and ministry that needs to be taken care of, and education that needs to be taken care of. But God said, David, your first priority, the sin that you've been participating in, is the sin of thinking that you're independent, thinking that you can shoulder this all yourself. So God called me back to a radical dependence upon him. He filled me with the joy of my salvation and began in me a journey in prayer unlike anything I had experienced before that. That was the point in my life that I, dis I began to discover what prayer was all about, a dependence upon God. About 10 years went by. I was a youth pastor again at a church down in Gaithersburg, Maryland and experiencing what I recognized for the first time, although it had happened a few times before, recognizing that I was in the condition of being burned out, just absolutely depleted to the point that I felt I had nothing to offer. I went for the first time to a Christian counselor and discovered the talking cure 
in the course of my talking and that counselor listening, I realized that I had become self-sufficient, thinking again that it was all up to me. All of that pressure, all of that burden on my shoulders. In the course of six months or so of counseling, I realized the need for living within a community of people, being part of a circle of Christians who support and love one another and pray for one another and mentor one another. I recognize that I'm not the Lone Ranger. I can never be a Lone Ranger. I need to be a part of a community. That was the beginning of another turnabout in my life where I began intentionally reaching out to colleagues and friends. No matter where I lived in the, in the, uh, the successive years, no matter where I went, I wanted to be surrounded by a group of people who knew and loved one another. Obviously, that happens in a congregation of people, but at an even deeper level, level, I have benefited from being a part of accountability groups and mentoring groups. Something that God gave me was the need to be surrounded by his love in the person of other people. In 2019, or 2020, excuse me, um, our last church, I went through, uh, and our church went through a, a horrible crisis, which in the end brought me once again to my knees. And the discovery this time around, after having been filled with the peace and the joy and the love of God, the discovery this time around was that I was harboring uh, nurturing false identities. You know, you ask the question, who are you? How would you answer that question? Who are you? Oftentimes we give the kind of work that we do or the kind of work that we used to do. We mention that we're married to so-and-so, that we've got kids that are producing wonderful grandchildren, and <laughs> that's the answer to that question, who are you? But during that crisis in my life, I realized that when I answered that question, it was usually I want to be a good husband and a good father and a good pastor, but recognized in the midst of that time that those were false identities. That's not who God had created me to be. First and foremost, I was God's son, God's child. That's my identity. I have a mantra that I repeat to myself every time I start to feel like I'm pursuing the wrong identity. I say, I'm a sinner, saved by grace, loved by my Heavenly Father. That's who I am. At that point, I was filled with a singular, deep love for God. One of the phrases the old-timers use when they're talking about entire sanctification and what we need to do to be entirely sanctified is to give God the unknown bundle. You know, as a teenager, when I first got saved and started hearing about the doctrine of entire sanctification, I heard that phrase, give, give God the unknown bundle. And as a 17 and 18 and 19-year-old, there was an awful lot of stuff in that unknown bundle, right? Most of life was ahead of me. <laughs> I don't know what kind of a situation I'm going to be in. I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know the challenges and the struggles and the successes and the glories, but it's all unknown, and I'm giving that to God. 
Well, that's fine and good, but then I came to these points in my life where I was shouldering the burden. I, I was feeling like everything was up to me. I was buying into false identities, all part of that unknown bundle that as a 21-year-old, I couldn't have imagined. So at each of those stages, God spoke to me and said, David, I want this part of that unknown bundle. And those were entire sanctification experiences for me, times of knowing the love and joy and peace of God in a deeper and deeper way. The common theme in those experiences in my life was captured by the words of a hymn that said, at the end of my hoarded resources. <laughs> Do you know what your hoarded resources are? Maybe they've been largely depleted by this point in your life. They, they got depleted in my life pretty soon. That was the phrase that kind of captured each of those moments in my life when I ended up going deeper with God. I had hoarded the resources only to discover that they were gone, absolutely gone. If being holy was up to me, it was obvious during those experiences that I was always going to be unsuccessful. Making myself holy is just not something I could do. My experience of entire sanctification includes both elements of purity and mission. There were the purity, the issues that God was dealing with in my own heart about control and dependence. But there was also mission. You noticed I was consumed with ministry challenges and stresses and goals. This combination is what this sermon series has been about for the last several weeks and for the next few weeks. So let me recap where we've been before we move on. This sermon series I'm calling Purity Plus Mission Equals Holiness. Purity plus mission equals holiness. And I might sum it up with a, a, a phrase. Holiness is the combination of the sanctifying purity of God in our lives and the empowering commissioning of God in our world. He works his purity in our lives so that we can be commissioned to serve him in the world. The first sermon in this series I called Made in the Image. Made in the Image. The point of it being that if God is holy and we are meant to bear his image, then we are capable of holiness. I believe that to be a valid syllogism. If God is holy and we are made in his image, then we have the capability of being holy. This is the place where you nod, or you say amen, or you say, I, I'm thinking about that, Pastor. The, one of our general superintendents, David Busick, recently wrote a book called Way, Truth, and Life, in which he explores the journey of holiness. He says at one point, the goal of all Christian discipleship, the goal of all Christian discipleship, this means your morning devotions, it means your discipleship class, it means all of the Bible studies you've ever been a part of, it means all the worship service you've ever been a part, the goal of all Christian discipleship is to shape the recipients of grace 
raise your hand if you're a recipient of grace. That would be all of us. The goal of all Christian discipleship is to shape the recipients of grace into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. I think we may have done this before, but it bears repeating. Turn to somebody close to you and say, hmm, you really do look like Jesus. Come on. Because that's the goal of what we're doing around here, right? That we might bear the image of God. The second sermon I called Redlining the Promised Land. I discovered after, afterward in a, in a conversation uh, that, that redlining has multiple definitions, and to a, an engineer it means something else, right, Brian? You know? But redlining the promised land means, in, in the, the first usage, limiting access to resources to a group of people. So not giving mortgages to certain people because of their skin color or not giving uh, other kind of neighborhood resources to people because they're supposed to live on the other part of town. Well, I would suggest that in my definition, God has drawn a line written in the blood of Jesus around the entire human race, around the entire world, and has invited us all to move into his neighborhood. That's the kind of a heavenly father that we have. He wants everyone to move into his neighborhood. An all-inclusive mission of God is this making us, remaking us in the image of Jesus, no matter who we are and where we've come from. The third sermon I called the Nazarene, focusing on this paradoxical downward way of Jesus the downward way of becoming a servant to the people that he created, the downward way of going to the cross for the very people who have sinned so grievously against God. That downward way of Jesus not only defines the shape of our ministry, remember I talked about the Church of the Nazarene and their focus to ministering on the people, to the people on the wrong side of the tracks. So it not only defines the shape of ministry, but it also gives us the greatest clue about how to experience purity. I summed up that sermon in the phrase, will we follow the American success story of the poor boy who became rich or the biblical success story of the rich boy who became poor? So, made in God's image, called to be like Christ in his downward way, a willingness to give up all that we have for the kingdom of God. So again, summing up this sermon series, holiness is the combination of the sanctifying purity of God in our lives and the empowering commission of God in our world. Holiness requires a collaboration between the God who makes us holy and we who are in need of being made holy. There's a collaborative work uh, that needs to go on there. I surprisingly discovered an expression of this collaboration in our Stephen ministry training. There's seven of us that are meeting on Sunday evenings and having a wonderful time being trained to be able to provide 
uh, emotional and spiritual care to people in our congregation and our community who are experiencing some difficult times. And one of the principles of Stephen ministry is that there are process goals and there are result goals. Process means the things over which we have control. I can schedule a monthly visit or a weekly visit with this person who's, who's going through a difficult time. And when I'm there, I can be a person who listens empathetically. And I can be the kind of a person who prays for these people. Those are, those are things over which we have control, process goals. The other kind of goals are results goals what we hope to see come true in the end. We hope that this person is able to move on from this traumatic event and become a flourishing, uh, happy, joy-filled person in the end. But who's responsible for that happening? Is it me? Absolutely not. But we have this terrible addiction to trying to fix people, don't we? (laughs) Or trying to fix ourselves. Who is responsible for that kind of healing? God. So I should focus on process goals, what I have control over, and not fuss with God's goals, the results goals. That's one of these important, important principles of Stephen ministry. But it sounds an awful lot like the process of being entirely sanctified, if you ask me. God is the cure giver. God is the sanctifier. His job is saving and sanctifying. God wants us to be holy. He has the power and the grace and the standing to make us holy. That's his work and only his work. What is our role? What is my role in this? My role is to consecrate myself, to give God permission to do his work in my life. That's what I have control over, right? My job is to desire to be entirely sanctified. My job is to ask God to sanctify me. My job is to give up everything that is getting in the way of me being filled by God's image, being remade in his image, being filled with his love. So there's this two-part collaboration that goes on. There's what we do as believers, and there's what God does as a holy-making God. Something which is described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you want to join me there. 1 Thessalonians, back there near the end of the Bible, chapter 5, beginning with verse 16. And I'm just going to talk through this passage from 16 to 24. Paul often, at the end of his letters, gives some last-minute reminders. Reminders to the congregation about how to how to live the Christ-like life. And one way of looking at this, these couple paragraphs here is to think that these are discrete lists of little one-off kind of things that we need to remember. And they are that. You can, you know, if you're going to memorize a verse, verse 16 and 17 are the Bible verses to remember, right? Memorize, they're only two words, kind of like Jesus wept. They're three two-word verses in all of the Bible. Those are my specialty. <laughs> But they're also linked together, and I want to point out how they're linked together here this morning. So the first phrase is rejoice always. The root of that is the word joy. And where do we find joy? It's not in the circumstances of our life, right? That's happiness or unhappiness. Joy has to do with the certainty that we are in right relationship with God. 
I had joy because God surprised me as a high school senior with his love, setting me free from my selfishness and pride. I have joy because God, when I look at it now, God had been working in my life even before I got saved to bring me to that point. And for all of the 44 years since that time, God has been drawing me closer and closer and closer into relationship with him, and that brings me joy. So rejoice always. Rejoice continuously. Don't get focused on the circumstances that may make you unhappy today, but instead have the joy of knowing that you are in right relationship with the God who wants to restore his image in you. Woohoo! Next is pray continuously. Prayer is a word that most of us think just means a conversation, and oftentimes it may feel like a one-way conversation. I do all the talking and the heavens are as brass, right? God say something. (laughs) But it's more than just a, a conversation. Prayer is a word that captures our union with God, our entire relationship with God. It's a conversation, a union that sets the stage for all of our spiritual growth. As we're having this back and forth conversation with God, as we are living in his presence in a prayerful way, God is moving us from one stage to the next of our spiritual maturity. Prayer is the expression of our continual dependence upon God. I don't know about you, but one of my most repeated prayers is, God help me. (laughs) Short, sweet, and it expresses what is probably most important. I can't make it without God. We are wholly dependent upon him. God help me. Prayer is fellowship in the presence of the Lord continually with us. So when he says pray continually, Paul is saying, pray all of the time and about all of the things. Bring everything under God's control through prayer. Next phrase, give thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice continually, pray continually, give thanks continually in all circumstances. The ordinary circumstances of our life is the workplace where God is doing his image rebuilding work. You get that? The ordinary experiences and circumstances of your life is exactly where God is most at work forming your spiritual Christ-like life. One might think that it's a Sunday morning in the worship service. I would suggest probably not. One might think it's in a Sunday school class or a Bible study. Probably not. I think it's in the ordinary ups and downs of life that all of that stuff we've heard and learned meets the the road. The rubber meets the road, and that's where God begins to transform us. The ordinary circumstances of life are the workplace of God in our spiritual formation. It doesn't matter, matter whether those are pleasant or unpleasant circumstances. That's where God can and does do his sanctifying work. Say, thank you, Jesus, (laughs) especially for the hard times. A little mumbling going on there, right? Okay. Give thanks in all circumstances. Then he says, do not quench the spirit. 
really? Is it possible for me, puny me, to quench the Spirit, the almighty, powerful, awesome Spirit of God? Really? Can I quench the Spirit? I think, I, I think, Paul, I think you're giving me a little more credit than I deserve. Oh, but no. We do it all the time, don't we? How many times have you said, or maybe in your subconscious prayer, you've said, Lord, help me with this, but I really don't think you're going to be able to. Lord, heal this person but I don't think it's going to happen. Lord, change this attitude, but I know that tomorrow I'm going to have the same attitude. How often do we try to talk God out of doing what God and God alone can do? Don't put out the fire of the Spirit of God. You have this image in your mind, the Spirit is often depicted as fire. If you're going to draw a caricature or a cartoon describing your relationship with the Holy Spirit, are you carrying a pail of water? (laughs) All too often I suspect that that's really what's going on. We're not intending to quench the Spirit, but we have such low expectations for what the Holy Spirit can do in us that oftentimes that's exactly what we're doing. Who are we to say what God cannot do? How dare we tell God that he can't sanctify us and make us holy? Because that's God's will for us. That is God's purpose for us. That is God's intention for us. He goes on to say, Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. The prophecies he's speaking about here are not... Nostradamus kind of future-telling prophecies. He's talking about preaching and teaching, things that uh, the Lord has inspired, the revelations that God has given to other believers that they share with teaching and preaching and ordinary kind of conversations. That's what the prophecies are. It's testimonies, sermons, and teaching, especially those that talk about holiness and God's intention for us to be his holy people, to bear his image. In other words, when you hear somebody preaching about entire sanctification like today, and I say, try it, you'll like it, you shouldn't treat that with contempt. So in summary, for this first part of the the passage, our part... The process goals over which we have control. Our part is to rejoice and to pray and to give thanks all the time in all circumstances for all sorts of things and to be open to the Holy Spirit and to be open to the Word of God. Can you do that? Can you rejoice always? Can you pray continually? Can you give thanks in all circumstances? Come on. Yeah? I mean, that's not outside the realm of what we can do, right? We can listen to the truth and weigh what it means for us and begin to put that into practice. We can do this. But I talked about this collaboration with God, right? There's the stuff that we do, and then there's the stuff that he does, and that's where Paul is going next. 
He said, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) That is one of the most exciting Bible verses in all of Scripture. Are you looking at it there? May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, <laughs> how many times has he, has, has he referred to this now? Sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, not just a little part of you, but the whole thing, the whole ball of wax. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept, say it with me, blameless. What does blameless mean? No blame. That was was hard. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the one doing this. Only God can do this. He is the cure giver. Through and through refers to to being wholly sanctified, that whole unknown bundle. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about being sanctified through and through. God can address everything that's going to happen to us past, present, and future. God can solve every problem. God can forgive every sin. God can empower every one of our desires to be his children. It means to be completed. It means to be perfected by God's grace. Blamelessness means not only sanctification in the the sense of being set apart for God's specific use, but also that God can make us of pure character and conduct. And then he says, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. I don't know about you, but in the Church of the Nazarene, whenever in Sunday school or something, we start having a conversation about entire sanctification and we start using words like Christian perfection and perfect love and that kind of stuff, there's an awful lot of people that start saying, yeah, but... Don't quench the spirit. It's right here on this page in black and white. The one who calls you is faithful. The one who calls you to be made holy. The one who calls you to be restored to the image of Christ. The one who calls you to be able to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And your neighbor as yourself is the one who is going to do it. My part in all of these episodes of my life was to confess, Lord, I'm not spending time with you. Lord, I'm trying to shoulder all of the burden of ministry. Lord, I'm trying to do it on my own. Confessing and consecrating my self-centeredness, that's what my role was. That's what your part in this equation is. 
God's part is to fill me and to fill you with his Holy Spirit, his peace, his joy, his love. If we think that being holy is up to us, then we're probably unlikely to pursue this goal, right? (laughs) Because, oh Lord, how could I do that? But if we recognize that making us holy is God's job, and that our part is to pursue that by consecrating everything to him, then I think that could happen. Can I get an amen? I think God can take me to the next level of love with him. Amen? I think God can conquer this besetting sin in my life because he loves me and wants me to be a saint. Amen? Our part is entire consecration. God's part is entire sanctification. I mentioned this phrase from Annie Flint's hymn, He Giveth More Grace. He giveth more grace in the midst of ministry difficulties. I think that's probably why she wrote this song initially. But it also means that God gives us his grace in the midst of our desire to be more like him, to be remade in his image. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, We have tried to be holy people. Maybe it looks an awful lot like a Pharisee, but I'm trying to be holy, Lord. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our hoarded resources of patience, gone. Kindness, gone. Gentleness, history, Self-control. <laughs> when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth, and giveth, and giveth again. I know many of you have been entirely sanctified, but please hear the words of Harvey Blaney. If being sanctified once is good, then two or three times is even better. If there's something in your sanctified life that you're finding you continue to struggle with, let's get on our knees again. Another part of the unknown bundle has just raised its ugly head. God's got it, right? So as we sing a bit of that hymn, 
I would invite you to come forward to the altar and consecrate something or everything to God. Or kneel in the row of the seat where you're sitting right now. Or if arthritis won't allow any of that, then just bow your head and bow your heart and consecrate yourself to God. Let's not quench the Spirit if the Spirit is at work wanting to make us more and more like Jesus with every passing day. Let's not throw water on that. Instead, let's say, Lord, here I am. This is my job. Here I am. Now do the thing that only you can do. Fill me with your Spirit. Let's respond as God leads you as we sing this song. ceaseless love in our lives. From the moment we were born, you have been working for our sanctification. Lord, you have surrounded us with a great cloud of witnesses that have prayed for us, have set an example for us, have taught us, have preached to us, have walked this journey shoulder to shoulder with us, have set the example of Christ-likeness that we have grown to admire. Lord, you have been working for us for so long. Countless times you have helped us to move to that next level of Christ-likeness. Countless times, Lord, you have prodded us and poked us and convicted us and consoled us and helped us to grow up in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the grace that has been poured out in our lives. 
but lord perhaps this morning we have to confess that we've grown a little stale we've been going through the motions good motions godly motions but still going through the motions without thinking about it without praying about it and Lord perhaps we've entered a new stage of life that's come with a set of challenges that we've never faced before aches and pains and groans and moans Lord, we need you in this new stage of life. We need you to be the Lord of our lives as we face a new set of challenges. And Father, we can't keep doing what we've always been doing because we're not the same person that we used to be. This isn't the same world as the one that we grew up in. Father, we pray that you would prepare us for what's gonna happen to us tomorrow. What's gonna happen to us this week? The unknown bundle of the coming year Lord, we want you to be Lord of that day, that week, that month, that year. We want you to be the Lord of our lives, guiding us to say and to do what you want done, that your kingdom might come and become a greater reality in our world. Father, we are your mission instruments, and we need to be purified, and we need our love to be deepened for you, and we're inviting you to do that this morning. Lord, we will rejoice always. We will pray without ceasing. We will give thanks in all circumstances. We will not quench your spirit. We will let you have free reign in our lives so that we would look more like Jesus at the end of the day and that you would be able to use us in your mission field, your harvest field, more effectively than ever before. Lord, have your way. You giveth and giveth and giveth again. And we receive it today, Father, in Christ's name and for his glory alone. And all of God's children say, Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. I would invite you at some point today, maybe in discipleship hour, maybe around the dinner table, have a conversation about what the Lord is stirring up in you. If we keep it to ourselves, there's a good chance that the deceiver will quench that movement of God in our lives. But if you share it with somebody else, if you enlist somebody else, another saint to be praying for you and encouraging you, God will be able, more likely, to accomplish his purposes. So have a conversation about that at some point today, would you?